five kidnapping ransoms gone horribly wrong. Getting kidnapped is a horrendous ordeal that not only the victim suffers from, but his or her loved ones as well. This horrible crime affects every kind of person, regardless of age, sex, and status in life. And while some victims may come out alive, others might not be so lucky. Here are five kidnapping ransoms gone horribly wrong. Number five, Lee Matthews. The kidnapping and eventual murder of Lee Matthews in 2004 is a case that brought the nation of South Africa together through grief and terror. Born in 1983, Lee was a university student who had just come of age when she was ripped away from her family. Her tragic life story began with her simple birthday celebration on July 8, 2004. Lee had planned something somewhat extravagant for her 21st birthday, and she decided to extend the celebration over the weekend. This time, it would be a themed party, and it would be held at a club. The Matthews, who were rather well-off, couldn't have been happier to agree to Lee's idea. The night ended on a good note, but little did they know, this would be the last time that they'd be together as a family. The very next day, on July 9th, Lee was abducted from a parking lot at Bond University where she attended as a commerce student. Just shortly after the kidnapping, the Matthews family then received a call from the kidnapper demanding a ransom in exchange for Lee's freedom. It didn't take long for Rob Matthews, Lee's father, to raise the amount of 50,000 South African rand, which is roughly 3,000 US dollars as of today. The drop-off was made near the Grasmere Toll Plaza, south of Johannesburg. Much to Mr. Matthews' confusion, though, Lee wasn't given back during that exchange. He was only told by the perpetrator to leave the scene, which the victim's father did. Out of growing desperation, her parents called the police for help. They also sought the media's attention, calling for the kidnapper to return their little girl. Then their worst nightmare came true when they received a report saying that Lee's body was discovered by a municipal worker in an open field near the highway in Walkerville, south of Johannesburg. It had already been 13 days since she was kidnapped. Much to their grief, the Matthews found out that Lee was found naked and had been shot in the back four times. The assailant was identified as one Donovan Moodley, who was 24 years old at the time. Moodley, charged with kidnapping and murder, also happened to be a former Bond University student, although he was not personally acquainted with the victim. It was stated in the court records that Moodley shot the victim at point-blank range, dragged her lifeless body into the bushes, and there fired another three shots, also at point-blank range. Moodley was sentenced to life in prison for murder in 2005, Lee's tragic story was covered in a crime docudrama series titled A Family's Nightmare Begins, The Lee Matthews Story. Number 4. The Case of Stephen Stainer When it comes to heinous crimes, there are only a few things that can come off as haunting as child abductions. The terror and pain that a child has to go through while in confinement could leave scars that last forever, 
But how much more for a young victim who has been detained for so long that he has already forgotten his own identity? Such is the tragic story for Stephen Stainer, who, at the age of seven, was taken away from his home and family, never to be seen or heard from again until seven years later. On December 4, 1972, Stephen, who was on his way home from school, was approached by a man who identified himself as Irvin Edward Murphy. Murphy claimed that he was part of a ministry and was collecting donations for their church. Murphy was, in fact, under the instructions of convicted child rapist Kenneth Parnell to pose as a ministry worker, passing out gospel pamphlets to students going home from school that day. After spotting Stephen, Murphy asked if the boy's mother would be willing to give out any donations to the church. Stephen said his mom would surely be interested to donate something, and so Murphy offered Stephen a ride back home, to which the boy agreed. Almost immediately, though, a white Buick driven by Parnell pulled up in front of Murphy and Stephen. The latter climbed into the car with the expectation that it would bring him back home. Much to his confusion, Stephen noticed that their destination was not towards his home, and Parnell instead drove the car to his cabin near Cathy's Valley in California. It was in that secluded cabin that Stephen's nightmare then began. Parnell raped the seven-year-old over and over again for 13 days straight. Broken and traumatized, Stephen begged Parnell to let him go, but the pedophile remained adamant to the child's begging. Parnell even fabricated a story, telling the boy that his parents didn't want him anymore and that he had already been granted legal custody of him. Parnell went on to change the boy's name to Dennis Gregory Parnell. During the entire course of his illegal detainment, the elder Parnell would introduce himself as the legal father of Stephen. Parnell moved frequently around California, bringing the boy along with him, And this went on for seven long years. But as the boy grew up, Parnell began to use him as an accomplice in kidnapping younger children. Stephen, however, devised plans to intentionally sabotage those. Determined to satiate his wicked cravings, Parnell sought help from another teenager of whom he was able to successfully nab a five-year-old, Timothy White. But Stephen was having none of this, and one night while Parnell was away, Stephen and White escaped and went to the police. The officers arrested Parnell in 1980. He was convicted of the crimes committed against the two children and served five of the seven years he was sentenced for them before being released. In 2003, at the age of 71, Parnell was arrested for trying to get a caregiver to purchase a four-year-old boy for him. He passed away of natural causes while incarcerated for that crime at the age of 76. As for Stephen, he had trouble adjusting to life back when he was with his family. He tried to live a normal life, but also began to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. At age 24, he got into an accident while on his motorcycle on his way home from work and tragically passed away. Timothy White, at age 14, was one of his pallbearers, and over 500 people attended the funeral. Number 3. The Case of Garrett Jan Hine 
A person's wealth and prominence in society can make him an attractive target for kidnappers, so it's not unusual to hear news of rich businessmen, well-known executives, and even famous celebrities being abducted. And Garrett Jan Hine was one of these affluent but ill-fated individuals. In 1987, Hines' grandfather, Albert, founded a grocery store business in the Netherlands. That enterprise later grew to become the Dutch retail giant company, Ahold. In case you may not know, Ahold just happens to own huge U.S. grocery chains like Food Lion, Giant, and Stop and Shop. Hine and his older brother took on the leadership roles within the company, and things were going well until one day in September of 1987 when a man named Ferdy Elsis kidnapped Hine outside of his home in Harlem, Netherlands. Hein, who was 56 years old at the time of his abduction, was taken by Elsis at gunpoint. Elsis wanted money, and on October 14th, Hein's relatives demanded for proof of life from the kidnapper, to which Elsis happily provided by mailing them Hein's pinky finger. Little did they know that Elsis had already killed the man on that very same day when he was abducted. According to reports, Elsa shot the victim in the head and threw his body deep into the forest on September 9th. The finger that he sent to the family had actually been severed right after the killing. He then preserved it inside a refrigerator in his home in the village of Landsmere, north of Amsterdam. Without them knowing the real situation, Heinz family paid Elsis a total of $4 million in cash and diamonds for the victim's release on November 27th. But obviously, Garrett was never freed. A national news conference in late December was then aired asking for the public's help, and the police then received more than 10,000 tips that led them right to the perpetrator's house. The residence was kept under surveillance for over a month, during the course of that stakeout, Elsis was noted as using the ransom money for purchasing goods at a nearby supermarket. Finally, in January of 1988, authorities raided his house, hoping that they could still find and rescue Hein. Elsis was captured while his wife and children were temporarily taken into custody before being released without charges. During the trial, Elsis told the court that his motive for kidnapping was purely financial because at the time, he was an unemployed architect with a family. He was then handed a 20-year prison sentence. Through his directions, police were able to recover the remains of Hine buried in the woods near Rankum. Number 2. Shannon Matthews The missing persons case of Shannon Matthews is thought to be as big as the disappearance case of Madeline McCain, the little girl who was taken from her bed in 2007 and until now has never been found. Shannon fortunately was found alive and well later, however the story behind her disappearance is definitely unnerving. The twisted tale of child kidnapping took place in the town of Dewsbury Moor, West Yorkshire, England. Shannon, who was born on September 9, 1998, was the third child of Karen Matthews. She was the product of a broken family after Karen broke up with Shannon's father. Left to fend on their own, the Matthews household was far from being considered comfortable. Jobless and hooked on drugs, 
Karen had to rely on child benefits from the local council to sustain Shannon and her three siblings. All this while Karen's newfound boyfriend, Craig Maheen, was living with them. Shannon resented having to live with her irresponsible mother and wished that she'd be taken by her father. The two argued so frequently that the neighbors had gotten used to hearing them shouting at each other every single day. That is, until February 19, 2008, when silence took over the Matthews household. According to reports, Shannon failed to return home from school that evening. The officers handling the case immediately went over to Leon's house, who was Shannon's father, to check if she was there. Soon enough, the Moorside Estate neighborhood joined in the search. In the days that followed, almost the entire West Yorkshire community clamored to find the lost young girl. According to accounts, more than 3,000 houses in the area were being searched. Almost the entire police force was utilized for the operation as well, making it the largest police investigation undertaken since the Yorkshire Ripper investigation three decades prior. Two weeks had gone by and not a single breakthrough was made in the case. Meanwhile, a reward for information on Shannon's whereabouts ballooned from $20,000 to $50,000. In March, the police received a tip about an individual whom Karen supposedly failed to mention. The person in question was a man named Michael Donovan, who was Craig's uncle. He happens to live less than a mile away from the Matthews residence. Almost immediately, the police went over to Donovan's place, but nobody was there. Neighbors, however, reported hearing noises that seemed to sound like there was a child in the home. This was enough to alert detectives working that day, and so they forced their way onto the property, and there they found the girl stuck under the bed. Donovan was later found, hiding out in the house. He was immediately arrested on suspicion of kidnapping. Gritty revelations flooded soon after. It was discovered that the abduction was actually planned by Karen and Donovan. They hoped that Shannon's kidnapping would generate money from publicity. The pair had planned to split the money 50-50, but Donovan was charged with kidnapping and false imprisonment, while Karen with child neglect and perverting the course of justice on April 8, 2008, and each were given eight years in jail for their part in the crime. Number 1. Carrie Lawson Nothing can be more horrifying than to see a loved one being snatched right in front of you. For Earl Lawson, it's even more agonizing for the simple fact that up until today, He and the rest of his family still don't know if their beloved Carrie is alive or not. Carrie, a young lawyer, was 25 years old when she was forcefully taken away from her home in Jasper, Alabama on September 11, 1991. Carrie and her husband, Earl, received a distress call one night claiming that Earl's father had fallen ill and that they were needed at the hospital. Alarmed, the couple rushed out to their car, however, Everything they were just told was a lie. Then, out of the darkness, a masked man appeared. He had a gun in his hand, and he ordered the Lawsons to get out of the car to which they complied out of fear. He then pinned down Earl to the ground while instructing Carrie to bind her husband with duct tape, after which the gunman and Carrie drove away from the scene, and this would be the last time that Earl would ever see his wife. 
The gunman demanded a hefty ransom of $300,000 for Carrie's freedom. Before the drop-off was made, the FBI inserted tracking devices in the money bag, hoping that it could lead them to the ones responsible. However, that plan failed. Just as everything was starting to seem hopeless, a big break in the case came through in the form of a voice recording. The information gathered from that material greatly helped the authorities in tracking down the suspect of the kidnapping. The person in question was a man named Jerry Bland who was 49 years old and a former strip mine operator. Further investigations revealed Bland's associate in the kidnapping, Karen McPherson. A truck driver by profession, McPherson and Bland were relatives. She was the one who made the distress call on the night of September 11th. On September 28th, the FBI went to Bland's home where they found some of the ransom money stashed in a truck that was parked nearby. Having been refused entry into the house, the investigators went back to retrieve a search warrant they left in the car. It was then when they heard a single gunshot coming from inside the house. After the agents managed to break into the property, they discovered Bland dead from what was declared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Land took with him to his grave the information on Carrie's whereabouts. It's been almost 30 years now since the kidnapping, and Carrie has never been seen since. So there were five kidnapping ransoms gone horribly wrong. With no assurance of freedom or guarantee that your life will be spared, getting kidnapped is possibly one of the most terrifying things that could ever happen to a person. If you enjoyed watching this video, then please remember to subscribe to our channel. We have new videos coming out every single week for you guys to check out. And check out our new podcast called Everytown, which is available wherever you listen to your podcasts and on this channel as well every Friday. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys soon.